This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for another week of Women to Watch. It's great to be back in the studio uh, with a woman I cannot wait to speak with. Her name is Laura Muka, and Laura is a poet. She is an author, a speaker, and an attorney, and she's calling us, joining us from London, and she'll be with me in just a moment. Uh, Don't forget to stay with us during the breaks to hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors talking about your health, finance, technology, and leadership. Um, We're going to be welcoming a a brand new member to our team in a few weeks, so be sure to visit our website at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T, for all announcements. And as always, a list of our upcoming guests. We have some really incredible women and stories in our lineup. So now I'm honored and thrilled to welcome to the show Laura Muka, again, poet, author, speaker, and attorney from London. Laura, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And I understand, you know, it's, I guess, the end of the day for you there. Um, But anyway, I wanted to start off with a quote. And um, it just kind of really gives a little bit of a background on you. You've said that after my grandfather died when I was 11, I was left with two amazing women, but no romantic relationship to observe. This really had an enormous impact on you growing up and really the precipitous for what led you to to begin writing. So I wonder if you can share with the listeners a little bit about that, um, your upbringing and, and why that was so impactful. Yeah, um, God, it's so weird to hear my writing quoted. <laughs> it almost <laughs> makes it like real that I've written something. Um, I, uh, I didn't know my dad growing up, so I... Uh, grew up with my mum and my grandparents and my grandfather who I called dad died when I was 11 and I don't really it's hard for me really to reflect on how I understood that at the time I remember crying until I didn't have any tears left but Mm. I also remember just kind of trying to be very good you know like achieving that seemed to be what I turned to but then you know, it's hard to know if I, I was always like that. So I, I don't really know. You know, sometimes you create these stories about yourself and it's hard to know what's actually true, you know. So 
he died and I was left with these two women and my grandmother um, had been kicked out of her home uh, with minute with like minutes to clear out when she was 11 um, from Poland and then spent two years in a labor camp in Siberia and then spent like about 10 years I think in um, refugee camps until she came to England and trained as a nurse and she uh, she was really like you know what if there's a war no one can take your education away from you if there's a war you need to have savings you know uh, the war really influenced how she saw things and so from a very young age I had education um, and research and and knowledge really kind of drilled into me the value of that um, whereas my mum was much more of a kind of rule breaker um, and far more irreverent, but also brilliantly bright. <laughs> oh. So I had this like strange combination, yeah. um, but didn't have a romantic relationship to observe. And so I started questioning people um, from very early on, like during school, I would go up to my friend's parents and say, do you ever think about divorcing each other? Or do you ever get tempted to cheat? Or do you share all your money? Because I just didn't understand. Like I didn't understand um, wow. And and people just sort of knew it about me and would go, oh, well, off she goes again. Um, <laughs> and I had no idea I was doing it. And then um, I uh, eventually um, decided to kind of formalise these interviews, although they were often conversations in my mind. Um, when I interviewed someone who is 95 in northern Argentina who'd been married for 75 years, and I thought, you know, I can't be the only person who was flummoxed by love. Um, but I think now that I've come this far along the journey, I've realized it wasn't just the absence of a romantic relationship from the age of 11 that influenced me. Losing someone that important to you is just massive. You know, it's really massive and it influences your, your whole life, mm. I think. And I, I actually think I'll spend my whole life trying to understand how it's influenced me. Yeah. Well, you know, we talk often on the show about the fact that, you know, everything really is connected to our childhood and then mm. things develop and evolve over our lifetime. And I think it's so interesting that you at such a young age took such a uh, passionate interest in um, relationships and, and, you know, how um, how they impact people's lives. So, when it's for the listeners, you, you, you've written a book called Love Understood, Who, How, and Why We Love. And um, I wanted to know if there's, you know, that you've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people, children through, as you mentioned, a 95-year-old adult male. And I wanted to know if there's one, this might be a really loaded question, one particular <laughs> conversation that stands out for you that gave you one of those incredibly... Uh, an aha moment where you said, oh, I yes. understand that. Yes, definitely. And it's quite depressing. <laughs> oh, depressing, depressing, but uplifting. Okay. Um, I was in Iceland in a queue in a cafe and it happened a lot that sometimes people would almost find me really. Um, and I was holding some books about love and got chatting to someone in the queue and we talked, it was a long queue. And then afterwards um, she said, could you interview me for your book? And I said, yeah, of course. And so we sat down and it transpired, you know, I can feel my heart rate increasing just even talking about this. Wow. She told me that she'd been kidnapped as a child for eight years. Um, and I, 
I honestly didn't know what to say. Like I, I, it, it, it was like someone had just punched me in the, in the belly. And I talked to her about it and she said, you know, I don't, I don't tell people about this. There's not space in the world for this. People don't want to hear about this. Um, and that's one of the reasons she was so excited to be involved was because she felt like her story had a place in the world. Mm. But what really hit me about it, um, other than to meet someone who'd come through such a horrific experience, was that um, when she escaped her captor when she was nine years old, so like most of her childhood was spent in captivity, uh, she she managed to escape because he lured another child and she was numb and mute at this point. And it was only when he lured another child that she realized that the most important thing in life is connection with other human beings. And I just think it's so easy to overlook that, you know, like there's just everything around us is, is designed to get us to buy things or do more or, um, distract or look at screens or, you know. Yes. Have more, and, have more yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and actually there's not enough to remind us or encourage us to do what I think is one of the absolute most important things for our well-being, which is to connect with other humans. And obviously I focused on romantic love, but you know, a lot of what philosophers and psychologists argue make up meaningful long-term relationships is friendship so actually you know best friendship and or you know relationships that you might have with siblings or parents or children you know those really intimate relationships are hugely hugely valuable to our mental well-being and of course they can be destructive to our mental well-being that's but it's also right just that's the irony with strangers yeah yes. I know right is. is that not not the irony that it's often what is our you know greatest conflicts in life are relationships with others um, and how they affect our own lives. But at the same time, if you don't have those connections, um, that that young lady is a great example of what it can do to you. Yeah, yeah. And also what I loved about that was, you know, I could sit here and say, you know what, I think human relationships are really important. And, you know, I do say that, but it's so much more powerful hearing it from someone who was starved of relationships yes. for eight years. Yes. And it's the same with most of, well, many of the things I talked about. So I interviewed um, another 95-year-old, a poet, who had been married for 65 years and 49 days until his wife died. And another guy um, who was in his 80s and whose wife had severe dementia. And to listen to those two talk about commitment is really, is far more powerful because they've done it, you know, they've made it work. Right. Whereas a a lot of research, um, you know, a a lot of research in the US and in the UK and and internationally is, is conducted with undergraduates because they're there. You, you give them a course credit in exchange for taking part. And that's great. But I, I think I'm going to learn something very different about commitment from someone who's 95 than from someone who's 21. Absolutely. Uh, listen, Laura, we have to go into our first break. And when we come back, you mentioned, you know, education. And I want to talk about what your master's in psychology and philosophy has added um, to your work and, and your book as well. Stay with us as we go into our break to hear our Tech Watch. We'll be right back. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. 
Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. Women in technology, where are you? In honor of Women's History Month, my March segments will be dedicated to all the incredible women in technology, past, present, and future. Ada Lovelace, born in 1815, developed an algorithm for a computer that didn't exist, and some would say she was the first computer programmer in theory. Hedy Lamarr, a screen actor from the 1920s, conceptualized the idea of frequency hopping. Her legacy lives on in the world of wireless technologies. Dr. Erna Hoover, born in 1926, invented a telephony switching program. Her 1971 patent for this technology was among one of the first software patents ever issued. These women were visionaries and problem solvers. They changed the direction of technology as we know it today. But with so many examples of strong women influencing technology, why is there such a depletion of women in this space? In the 1980s, women made up 37% of computer science degrees. Today, women only make up about 20%. Additionally, they make up less than 20% of U.S. tech jobs. So why does this matter? Women are excellent problem solvers, awesome at multitasking, and incredible relationship builders. Women trust their intuition and are persuasive. Women seek challenges and are equality-minded. Studies show when men and women are working together successfully, the result is more innovative workplace. Let's face it, innovation in technology is critical. Stay tuned for my segment next week that addresses some of the steps that we can take to closing the gap for women in tech. You can reach me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. If you're just tuning in, I'm having a wonderful conversation with Laura Muka, a poet, author, speaker, and attorney from London. And uh, she was sharing with us some of the conversations that she had with um, people that you know, I'll say you now, that you've interviewed for your book, Love Understood. It's so fascinating to me. I have so, so many questions. Um, I want to go back for a second, though, because you had described to me being that 11-year-old girl, um, losing your grandpa, not having your dad in your life, and the hardship that was in going out into the world and kind of having to pretend that you had a mom and a dad at home and, and creating those stories. I wanted to ask you, when did you stop pretending? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I know. So when you say pretending, like a classic example was, it was just easier in French class when your the classic way that we practiced French was to say, what does your mom do? What does your dad do? The assumption that everyone would obviously have a mom and a dad that I would just say my father was an engineer, which he is, but I didn't know him. So I would just say, you know, mon père est ingénieur, but it's not like I could 
actually give you any more information than that. And thankfully, that was the only question that I was asked. But there were other issues, like I have my mum's surname. And so sometimes people would go, oh, Mooka, where is your dad from? So there were presumptions everywhere. And also difference in terms of when I went to my friends' houses, the vast, vast, vast majority had two parents. And, and so there was a kind of element of feeling different. And I think at that point, I just wanted to be the same and so I think I had a bit of shame about that. And then when I was 29 um, and I was a full-time lawyer, um, I was hit by a car when I was walking across the road um, quite close to where I live. And what was ironic was I'd done so many dangerous things traveling around the world that for this to happen, you know, on a high street, <laughs> so close to my home, it was ridiculous. Um, and then I was left bed bound, virtually bed bound for a couple of years. And I had cardiac arrest and it was miserable. It was like really profoundly miserable. And in that period, I learned a, an, an extraordinary amount about myself. I learned about my weaknesses. I learned about what I felt shameful about. And I learned what my strengths were. I learned what I missed about being healthy, you know, and one of the things I missed was language usage because that went a little bit out of the door. Um, and I also like totally readjusted what my identity and values. So I used to identify, if you asked me to like list five words um, and how I would describe myself, I would have said clever, uh, achieving or successful, uh, funny, energetic, positive, probably. And in that time, I was absolutely none of those things. I was on occasion funny, but on the whole, I had no energy. <laughs> I wasn't feeling very positive. I definitely wasn't clever. <laughs> I mean, there was really nothing. I couldn't achieve anything. Like walking to the supermarket two minutes away required like multiple breaks to recover. And then I would be, you know, completely collapsed for wow. a day lying in the dark because it was such an exertion. So <laughs> it was, it was, you know, it was really, well, so who are you then? You know? And and also what was interesting was, you know, as a lawyer, I, I sometimes worked, you know, 90 hour weeks. I definitely always worked quite a lot of hours and I really enjoyed it, but it, it didn't leave much space for the appreciation, I think, of like, I mean, the present moment, I guess. I was, I was really enjoying what I did. I would like get into the, the zone of legal research and I would disappear and love it. But, you know, I wouldn't necessarily appreciate an interaction with a waitress for example in the same way because I was I felt like I had so much to do I was you know I was kind of going quite quickly all the time mm. and when I was absolutely bed bound and time was going really slowly the uh, when the postman came he would you know well there were a number of postmen um that came and there were females too they would um smile and say hello and we might exchange like a sentence each and that would transform my day, you know? And, wow. and, and that, and, and all of a sudden I realized that all the other stuff is totally, totally, totally pointless, really. And actually the only thing that's important is kindness. Wow. And so now the shame's just totally gone away because ah. it doesn't matter. And anything that I experience like shame, it's just something that is symptomatic of all humans and the human condition. And so it's made me really brave and it's kind of, it's like, it's like uh, getting a massive like water blaster. This is a terrible image, but <laughs> a water blaster <laughs> just blasted away all the shame. And wow. It's liberating. And it's really, wow. really liberating. Wow. I think. That's really, really powerful, Laura. Uh, 
really. I mean, I think that, um, you know, shame is something that just about everybody carries for one reason or another. Some of them are from very, very extreme experiences and others just perhaps, you know, as you say, nonsensical things. And the idea that something so tragic in your life um, revealed that lesson to you is something that I'm glad you're sharing, you know, openly and publicly, because I think people need to hear that. Yeah. I, and I also looked into it for the book because I kind of almost wanted to shoehorn it in <laughs> because I was determined. Yeah. But because uh, I really think that hope is incredibly important. And so whenever I do anything and in love understood, I wanted to communicate the realities, but I wanted to provide hope. And so I thought if you're going to talk about love, you have to talk about death because at some point we are very, very likely, unless we die before everyone else, to lose someone that we love. And, you know, that's what I experienced, right? And so I wanted to look into death. And losing someone we love is obviously, well, in my view, one of the worst things that we can go through. And so I wanted to look at the positives. And there's this area of research called post-traumatic growth. And it's the, the body of research really internationally relates to physical um, difficulties. So like spinal cord injury, HIV, um, a heart attack, all, I mean, you name it, they've done it. And, um, but there is also a small pocket of research relating to bereavement. And so I was like, great, I can put it in. <laughs> I can hook it in and give people hope. And what I found so hopeful about this research, and it was definitely my lived experience, was that really horrific, horrible trauma can help people, not always, but can help people lead better lives. And yeah. so people from around the world, whether bereaved or suffering um, ho horrible sicknesses, said, I'm more compassionate as a result. Yeah. Or yeah. I value relationships more than I did do. Or I'm clearer on the fact that I'm going to die and I'm therefore using my time better. You know, you know what, it, you know what, Laura, we have to take another break, but I want to pick that up when we come back because I think it's all about wisdom, right? Um, mm. Stay with us for our finance break. We'll be right back with Laura Muka. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Hi, this is Terry. And this is Maggie. And we're from Fortis Wealth. At Fortis, we are often able to help solve a problem for one of our families, whether we're meeting them for the first time, during a review, or any time we're asked for input. Maggie, what are some of the issues we have helped with recently? A common one is estate planning. Uh, many of our clients don't have wills, or if they do, they haven't been updated in some time. We stress the importance of having these documents reflect their current situation and wishes for the surviving family members. We refer them to estate planning attorneys who will do the legal review and write the documents. We are also finding a common theme among our middle-aged clients. Many of them are concerned about their own retirement planning and about their aging parents at the same time. We provide resources to help them start the conversation and navigate through the issues. 
Knowing what the parents want and having some guidance surrounding the probable lifestyle changes can make it easier on the whole family when decisions need to be made. We were also able to help some of our grandparent clients set up college saving plans for their grandchildren, which was very important to them. In this case, it also provided some tax advantages. I find that one of the most difficult things to nail down when putting together a financial plan is determining how much the family spends. You are so right. We help them get organized and suggest ways to enhance their cash flow. We're not going to tell someone they can't buy their daily high-end coffee, but often we can help them find more cost-effective insurance, reduce the fees they're paying for investments, or even save on taxes. How about our business owner clients and their families? Many of them are concerned about how to transition out of the business and retire. We help them design plans to realize value as they transfer control to the next generation or new owner. We show them how to build assets outside of the business to provide retirement income. So in general, we're educating our clients and families. Exactly. No idea or strategy is one size fits all. We try to present all options and help them decide what works best for them. So listeners, please visit our website, www.fortis-wealth.com on our, and our insights blog to learn more. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. Welcome back. You're listening to Women to Watch, and I'm joined by Laura Mooka, a poet, author, speaker, and attorney from London, and also the author of Love Understood, Who, How, and Why We Love. It's a really, really great book. And I'll tell you, Laura, it arrived on my doorstep uh, yesterday, so I was speed reading and, and trying to get through <laughs> it as quickly as I could. It's a very um, fascinating and easy read, by the way. And, um, you know, you were sharing... Um, before the break, talking about, you know, what what people learn when they go through, a, you know, a tragedy. It, it always makes me laugh when I think about the things that people worry about and um, that are such minute, small, nonsensical things. And then you, again, being hit by a car, two years in bed, cardiac arrest, um, you really could have died, right? So that's a wake-up call. And... Um, allowed you to really let go of some things. And I think what you were describing just makes me think people who go through that come out not not with not only life lessons, but there's just so much wiser than the rest of us, I would say. Yes. Although I think it's it's I'm always wary of generalizing, you know, I, I think that trauma can be a good thing, uh, but it also depends on how each individual, well, on, on the individual circumstances and how each individual processes it and also the the extent to which they have loved ones, right? Like it was easier for me to deal with because even though I was quite um, fiercely independent um, to the extent that like I could go into an entire uh, monologue about <laughs> the research behind that. I had an avoidant attachment pattern, which meant I was very independent and didn't connect with my emotions. I was very busy being brave. Um, but I think even though I was like that, I had, um, you know, my family and, uh, the guy that I had previously broken up with, who <laughs> is now my husband, Yes, who was like, you know, they were around, you know, I had friends and who were brilliant. And even though I would say, no, I don't need any help they would still give me help, you know? And even though I was a, a useless vegetable with nothing to say for myself, um, people still loved me. And I, I think that's really important. It's, it's, I think it will be much harder for someone to recover from trauma. And it's also something that's backed up by evidence. Um, 
children, for example, cope better with trauma, uh, whether that is, you know, a, a one-off trauma in an otherwise stable country or, you know, war, if they have parents that make them feel safe. You know, mm-hmm. if you have yes. someone, yeah. at least one person who is making you feel safe and loved, um, then it's you cope better. Same with divorce. People cope better with divorce if they've got better social supports, which is why men can sometimes struggle more than women because women tend to have stronger social support. Yes. So by the way, who did care for you during those two years? Who was with you? Um, My mom, my grandma, who since died, which is so devastating. uh, And my now husband, they were the main people and they were, I mean, so amazing. (laughs) I just, honestly, I can't, I can't imagine how boring and depressing (laughs) it was to be. But also like, it was important for them I think sometimes, you know, if you're a determined person, sometimes well, I thought I could just do my way out of the, the, the situation I was in, but sometimes you can't, you know, mm-hmm. and it took other people to say, you need to stop. Like you are white, you, you know, you, you need to, you need, you're shivering or whatever. You just passed out. You need to lie down. You, yeah. know? <laughs> you need right. other people. Yes. You can't do it on your own. That's right. Think. That's right. Um, that way. So let's talk about the book. Um, Love Understood really dives in deep to try to find the answer to who, how, and why we love. And when I read that title, I go right to the why. And and I wanted to know if you could describe the why in one sentence for yourself. What would that be? As in the why that I love or the why I think us as humans love? I would say, well, I guess I want to know both. So let's do the why um, from all your research and, and your book. What did you come up with? What's the commonality? And then was that the same for you? So I, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I'd like to give you two sentences. <laughs> oh, that's fine. <laughs> okay, great. Yes. They relate Answer it however you'd like. Okay, great, great. So um, if we're talking about early love the sort of love that you see in the start of relationships that tends to fade so like the intoxicating powerful obsessive love then evolutionary psychologists would argue that that love exists because it well there's a high correlation with lust so it's there to get us to reproduce and then also to stick around long enough for the kids to grow up you know i'm not sure how i feel about that as a theory because we don't really know how long it lasts. And some say it's around two years. The science is inconsistent depending on what you measure. Um, but I don't think children are that independent at two. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm not convinced, but I do, I can see that that would have more of a, a biological basis. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I mean, I think the second has a biological basis too, but then there's a sort of love that makes long-term relationships last um, this many psychologists call companionate love. It's very closely linked to friendship love. It's less intoxicating, much calmer, much more realistic. Um, and it's, it's harder work and it's more of a choice, more of a kind of general commitment, but a day-to-day commitment. And I think that kind of love, I really honestly just don't think we're designed to operate on our own. And there will be people who listen and there are people who don't agree and yes. think, no, no, we can operate on our own. I was one of those people. I think that that's, I think that's a defense mechanism against loss. I think that we aren't designed to be independent. And I think 
that it was, you know, it was easy for me to read about that, but living it, you know, when you're bed bound and you can't do anything, then, you know, independence doesn't exist. And that could happen to any one of us. And there's a lot of uh, academics around the world who argue that we didn't evolve to live the way that we live in many Western societies as we do. Like we evolved to, to live in communities, to support each other. Um, so this independence thing, I, d- I don't I don't buy it. I, mm. I definitely was a believer in it. You know what I'd love to do one day is have you and the, the, the person that, that believes the opposite, um, you know, do a little panel discussion on that. Because <laughs> it, it, it is, it's fascinating and people have two views. We're going to go into our last break, Laura, and we will come back. Stay with us for our Health Watch. You're listening to Women to Watch. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Now, the Women to Watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. March. Okay, divas, we made it through January and February. There's hope for spring. March also brings hope because it's Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Colon cancer is common but preventable. Yet more than a third of age-appropriate Americans don't get screened. One of the most common reasons, the bowel prep. My patients often say, I'm so relieved I had colonoscopy, everything was fine, or I'm really lucky you found polyps, now they're gone. They also admit the PrEP, not so bad. The test, I didn't feel a thing. So let's talk about the PrEP. In early days of colonoscopy, there was good cause to complain. Two and a half days of clear liquid diet, laxatives, and enemas. Who'd sign up for that? Then came the 90s. We switched to a four-liter drink. Yes, a little more than a gallon. It's hard to drink a gallon of something you like in only two hours. Now it's a kinder split prep. Half the night before, the second half to be finished about five hours before your procedure. It is critical to have a good prep, but up to 25% of cases are not clear on exam day. Not good. Any residual liquid or solid stool may hide polyps or cancer. A poor prep may lead to a longer test time, more anesthesia time, decrease in safety, and you may need to come back for a repeat exam. Ugh. Risk factors for an inadequate prep history of constipation, if you're taking medicines associated with constipation like pain meds, antidepressants, diabetes can slow your bowel motion, or if people just don't understand instructions. Read your instructions at least a week in advance. If you have questions, call your doctor and review any special issues with the staff. It's a good formula for a safe, accurate colonoscopy. Divas, it's March. Turn your porch light blue. Dress your home or business in blue lights. Take a selfie of you in blue. Send photos to info at bluelightscampaign.com. Website, bluelightscampaign.com. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 Thank you for joining us, Women to Watch. Here I'm joined by Laura Muka and uh, just fascinating conversation around her book, um, which was really uh, researched over a 10-year period. Laura interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people about um, 
who, how, and, and why we love as humans. And another question I had for you, I wanted to ask right off the bat, how does our upbringing influence our relationships? That, I think, would need probably five hours. To <laughs> to. Another whole show. <laughs> yeah. But I could give you some insights. Like, okay. Yes. Um, you know, just in, in numbers, for example, uh, a well-recognized um, trend is the intergenerational transmission of divorce. So if your parents divorced, you are more likely to divorce yourself. It doesn't mean you will. It just means you are more likely to. And they don't know why this is, the, you know, the people behind these numbers. But they have various theories, like maybe you don't learn the constructive behaviors necessary to maintain a relationship, or you learn that divorce is an option and therefore you're less committed. Um, but also the act of having your parents separate is likely to impact you. And then one of my favorite, I've already mentioned it, one of my favorite um, areas of research in the world is attachment theory. And it's one of the most researched areas in psychology. And the basic premise is that we're hugely impacted by our upbringings in the way that we relate to others, particularly what they call attachment bonds. So your relationship with romantic partners, sometimes best friends and children. So um, the idea is that based on a review of more than 200 studies, uh, across with 10,500 people across multiple countries, 58% of the population are secure. And that means that they're like not freaked out by relationships. They're realistic. Commitment comes easily. Intimacy doesn't freak them out. They're less likely to have um, mental health problems. Uh, they have, they're the kind of people that just get into relationships and stay in them. Um, and then 42% are insecure of which there are two main types, but there's also a third, which I won't go into. And of those, one is avoidant, um, which I, for sort of briefly described and the other is anxious so avoidant is true of 23 percent of the population and the idea is that you learn that others aren't safe to rely on and you learn that love can lead to loss and so what you do is you idealize self-sufficiency you project your vulnerabilities onto others so that you don't have to see them in yourself so that you can see yourself as invulnerable um, you might have a tendency to break up with people or not date them in the first place and this can be a very clever strategy when you're growing up because it might mean that you know by being this way you can be close to your parents if your parents don't like it when you want an emotional response from them you know if, if you just don't want anything from them then they'll happily be around you. You know, there are various times in your childhood where this is a really great strategy. It just isn't always that helpful growing up. Although it can also be helpful because, you know, in a corporate environment, for example, or at a boarding school, you're, you put up a, a very good, confident front and you're very good at problem solving if it's not emotional. You know, you just get on with stuff. Um, the other type is anxious attachment. It's not the same as being anxious generally. And that's true of 19% of the population. And that is in many ways the opposite. So instead of not connecting with your emotions, you're hyper-connected, you're, you're very sensitive to threat, and you're not very good at calming those threats down. So whereas when avoidant people are stressed out, they try and withdraw and become very independent, people with an anxious attachment pattern try and get close. They need to be close to someone to soothe themselves. And if they don't get that proximity, they can go into what psychologists call protest behavior, which are angry, uh, frustrated attempts to get close. They might sound a bit like, well, I didn't want to speak to you anyway. Um, and if those two end up in a relationship together, it, it can result in a chase, withdraw, chase, withdraw pattern because one wants space and the other wants to be close. So 
attachment yeah. theory is one way of the many ways and it's kind of a neat way I guess um, although it's really complicated of exploring how our upbringing can then actually change the way that we see think about and remember relationships it literally transforms the lenses um, through which we see other people and relationships so for example avoidant people will often think I just haven't met the right person or so and so it didn't feel right but the question is would it ever feel right with anyone because the not feeling right can be a protection mechanism Laura, in in learning all of this, and again, I know that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, have you discovered what you know what you are, and what do you do with that knowledge in your relationship with your husband? So I think I used to have an avoidant attachment pattern, but it's hard to know because I wasn't tested at the time. So I, it's kind of just me pontificating. Um, I have recently done my adult attachment interview, which is in a, for a project I'm working on with Audible on attachment theory. So I know that I am now secure, which is great. Um, I definitely... I definitely noticed um, avoidance flaring up in my relationship. Well, I mean, I broke up with him <laughs> for a right. start. Yes, you did. <laughs> and, right. Then, um, and now, like, you know, I noticed, I noticed, and I still have it, like, I noticed that I would, if we had an argument, I would be less motivated to fix the argument because I'd think, well, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. You know, if the starting point of someone avoidant is, I don't want to be in this relationship. And so then the motivation impacts everything. It impacts your commitment. It impacts the way you argue. It impacts how forgiving you are of their negative sides because everyone has a negative side. So it's it's completely transformed, I mean, everything really. And um, it was quite annoying when my husband used to throw it at my face because he'd obviously read numerous drafts of the book. And so sometimes he would say to me, Laura, you're being really avoidant. <laughs> like, don't throw my book at me. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's also changed how, who I am as a mum, right? Like I, I'm really determined to try and provide the best uh, circumstances for a secure relationship with my, my son. And I think that understanding is key to that. You know, I think you have to, the first step is understanding what the hell this theory is, because otherwise, you know, I would have just carried on seeing through the lenses of avoidance, thinking mm. it was always about the other and never recognizing that I was playing any part. Right. Listen, we only have a minute left. And and I wanted to get this question. And, you you know, again, <laughs> you have academic research that you've done, you know, um, because of your master's in psychology and philosophy. And then you interviewed hundreds of people and just had conversations, uh, you know. I would imagine that something you gleamed from one of those personal conversations was, again, one of those kind of wow moments that would be different from the research. Is yes. is there? I interviewed a guy in Denver Airport, and um, it was really empty, like rows and rows of seats and, you know, those massive ceiling to floor windows with the planes taking off. And I really didn't think he'd say yes uh, to being interviewed, and he did, and you know, he, there was a sadness about him and we talked and it transpired that his first wife had died um, after 12 years of marriage. And at the end of every interview, I would say, is there anything else you'd like to add or what's the most important thing you've learned about love in your life? And he said that love is unlimited. Don't close yourself off from it because it is always out there. Mm, all uh, around. As the, the quote from uh, Richard Curtis, I love. Laura Muka found the proof that love actually is all around. Um, he's the director of Love Actually in Notting Hill. I love that quote. 
Uh, listen, it's a great way to end the show. I really wish we had more time, Laura. And I'll have you back because I'm sure there's going to be another book coming out. Right? <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been lovely speaking to you. Oh, thank you so much. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Thank you always to my sponsors and our watch team of contributors for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title every week here on Women to Watch Media. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.